0: We come to chapter 24, which comes after 23. And 23 is a chapter of confidence in which Job, in fact, has great confidence in God's justice. Then we come to chapter 24, in which Job has no confidence in God's justice. And if you look at the first verse, he goes, why does the Almighty not set times for judgment? Why must those who know him look in vain for such days? Why is God not providing justice for those who are in need? So in the first 12 verses of this chapter, he sort of gives a list of the injustices that innocent people suffer. And here he's not talking about himself. And that's really interesting because up to this point, he's been saying, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. And now he turns around and he says, look at all these innocent people and look at all the things that happen to them. And in verses 13 to 17, um, he, he goes, I think, even a little deeper into those who commit these terrible things. But then in chapter, or in verses 18 to the end of the chapter, verse 25, he seems to say, well, God, they'll get theirs. God will, in fact, judge them. And commentators have argued that, boy, you get whiplash that in the beginning he's saying the wicked get away with murder. God doesn't seem to care. And then in the last part, he says, well, they will get theirs. God, in fact, will judge them. And their solution is, in fact, to say, That's not Job speaking. That's either Bildad or Zophar, one of the friends, but not Job himself. And part of that is a failure to recognize the nature of the pilgrimage of faith. As I said, there are at least two options, it seems, when it comes to reading Job. The first is to see him a man of great arrogance, that he is convinced that he's right and he dares to challenge God. The second is that we see him as a pioneer on the journey of faith. But most people don't take this. They take the first one. They see him as arrogant, in part because they see faith as a commodity, a product, rather than a process. People are more comfortable talking about having faith, you possess faith, rather than believing. And pilgrimage, interestingly enough, for many people, is seen as something that unbelievers do. You know, they go to sacred sites or whatever. And so it's seen as something that unbelievers do, but that believers, yeah, we don't need to do that because life itself is the pilgrimage. Part of the problem, too, is that people see faith as black and white. You either have perfect faith or you're in unbelief. Well, the reality is nobody has perfect faith. Okay? We, shouldn't, we should, in fact, acknowledge the imperfect nature of our faith. So when we see Job being confident one moment, chapter 23, and then complaining against God in the next, chapter 24, we tend to conclude that Job didn't have faith. We don't allow for the fact that there are oftentimes contradictions in our faith. We believe one moment, we question the next. I would suggest that one of the difficulties that's brought on by this chapter is due to another defect in our view of faith. And that is to say that our view of faith is much more Stoic than it is Christian. That is, we are to bear our difficulties or discomfort without complaining, without asking God or questions of God regarding these difficulties or discomfort. Stoicism is a philosophy that was founded uh, by Zeno, uh, who taught that people should be free from passion, they should be unmoved by joy or grief, and they submit without complaint to the unavoidable, unavoidable necessity. In modern language, grin and bear it. Don't get too happy, don't get too sad, that's just life. Just take it as it comes. So we may think, and many have argued, that faith is in fact blindly accepting everything that happens in our lives. That in essence, we are yes men or yes women to God's working in the world. That if you question what God is doing, you are being sinful and rebellious. Now, that is a real possibility that we can be sinful or rebellious. But it's not necessarily the case. Otherwise, what do we make of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? When faced with what was God's plan, that is his death by crucifixion, Ask if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. And then he continued, "Yet not as I will, but you will." We, send, we tend to rush to the okay. I'll do what you want. Your will, not my will. And we fail to recognize that Jesus did this three times. Okay. If he says not what I will, but what you will, then that should be the end of the story. But then Jesus comes back and asks again if it is possible. So to question, we are not to be yes people. Is that whatever comes, just grin and bear it. This is what God's bringing our way. What about the apostle Paul? In 2 Corinthians 12, he pleaded with the Lord, again, three times to take away a thorn in the flesh. Was this rebellion? I mean, if he asked once and God said, no, I'm not doing it. Well, then Paul shouldn't have asked again. Actually, God didn't say no what god did say was my grace is sufficient for you so i would argue that we should see job as a man of faith through the confidence and through the complaint this is how god sees him in the last chapters of this book by the way job is mentioned another place in the old testament in ezekiel chapter 14 verse 14 when speaking of the coming judgment even if these three men Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it they could only save themselves by their righteousness declares the sovereign Lord. God sees him as righteous and I think we should probably reconsider how we view faith. He is struggling but that is in fact a part of the journey of faith. So, chapter 24, Job's complaint focuses on three oppressive situations, the abuse of the weak, the oppressive working conditions for workers, and unpunished criminal acts. He does this for two reasons. First of all, to refute the easy black and white cause and effect presentation of his friends. But also, he wants God to act in his situation. So verse 1 is, why there's there are no judgment? Why does the Almighty not set times for judgment? Why must those who know him look in vain for such days? So he begins with two questions, which imply two things. That the wicked take advantage of the fact that God does not judge. God fails to judge. And secondly, the righteous endure hardship by hoping for justice, but oftentimes it, this hope goes unrewarded. The bottom line is, it seems that God's administration of justice is sporadic, it is partial, it is inconsistent. And Job now gives us a list Uh, verses 2 through 4, and then verse 9. Men move boundary stones, they pasture flocks they have stolen, they drive away the orphan's donkey and take the widow's ox in pledge, they thrust the needy from the path and force all the poor of the land into hiding. Verse 9, the fatherless child is snatched from the breast. The infant of the poor is seized for debt. Since the day of judgment never seems to come, the weaker members of the community are flagrantly violated. He begins by saying that the boundary stones are moved. This is a big issue in the law in Deuteronomy 19. Verse 14, do not move your neighbor's boundary stones set up by your predecessors in the inheritance you receive in the land the Lord your God has giving you to possess. That's how, you know, they didn't have surveyors like we do. They didn't have markers. They used stones. This is the end of my property, and this is where your property begins. And theoretically, you could move the stones, and who, who would know? If no one saw you do it, who would know? Well, God would know. God would know, and he would care. In Proverbs 23 verses 10 and 11, do not move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the field of the fatherless, for their defender is strong. He will take up their case against you. This is the first of a list. Flocks are stolen, you know, rustlers. The orphan's donkey is taken. The widow's ox is taken as collateral. You should, in fact, help those who are in need, an orphan or a widow. But no, in fact, you take what is theirs. They are pushed out of the way and pushed into hiding. And children are taken as payment for a debt. So there is the abuse of the weak. What about those who work? Let's say the weaker at the bottom of society because they're weak. But what those, that sort of, not middle class, but in the middle, those who work. Verses 5 through 8 and then 10 and 11. Like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go about their labor of foraging food. The wasteland provides food for their children. They gather fodder in the fields and glean in the vineyards of the wicked. Lacking clothes, they spend the night naked. They have nothing to cover themselves in the cold. They are drenched by mountain rains. And hug the rocks for lack of shelter. Verses 10 and 11. Lacking clothes, they go about naked. They carry the sheaves, but still go hungry. They crush olives among the terraces. They tread the wine presses, yet suffer thirst. Job here is talking about what we would call today the working poor. Those who have to forage for food. Those who have to glean in the vineyard of the rich. Not simply the rich, but the wicked Those who work but are not allowed to taste the fruits of their labor. They don't have sufficient clothing. They don't have sufficient shelter. It's all because of the wickedness of those who oppress them. And we see that the criminals, in fact, go unpunished. verse number 12. The groans of the dying rise from the city, and the souls of the wicked cry out for help. But God charges no one with wrongdoing. Verse 13. There are those who rebel against the light, who do not know its ways or stay in its paths. When daylight is gone, the murderer rises up and kills the poor and needy. In the night, he steals forth like a thief. The eye of the adulterer watches for dusk. He thinks, no one will see me. And he keeps his face concealed. In the dark men break into houses, but by day they shut themselves in. They want nothing to do with the light. For all of them, deep darkness is their morning. They make friends with the terrors of darkness. And one could say, and God does nothing about it. He charges no one in spite of the groans of the dying, the cries of the wounded. In a historical novel that I read recently, the main character is faced with the cruelty of his opponent, this is what the author writes. Through his rage and despair, he quietly cursed God for his cruelty in giving a creature like De Demarcy the will to commit such an atrocity. He obviously hates this man, his opponent, but he curses God because why did God make such a person and then give this person the will to commit such cruelty? Job puts it this way. There are those who rebel against the light, They need the cover of darkness to do what they do. The murderers, the adulterers, the thieves. But there's more at work here. They sin against the light that is given by God. They avoid the light of conscience. Murder is a sin against the sanctity of life. Adultery is a sin against the sanctity of marriage. And theft is a sin against the sanctity of private property and ownership. Each is a sacred right. It is fundamental to the survival of society. But you may remember what Jesus told Nicodemus. Light has come into the world, but men love the darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And Job seems to be saying, and God does nothing. But then we come to verse 18. Yet they are foam on the surface of the water. Their portion of the land is cursed. So that no one goes into the vineyards or to the vineyards as heat and drought snatch away the melted snow. So the grave snatches away those who have sinned. The womb forgets them. The worm feasts on them. Evil men are no longer remembered, but are broken like a tree. They prey on the barren and childless woman to the widow show no kindness. But God drags away the mighty by his power. Though they become established, they have no assurance of life. He may let them rest in a feeling of security, but his eyes are on their ways. For a little while they are exalted, and then they are gone. They are brought low and gathered up like all others. They are cut off like heads of grain. If this is not so, who can prove me false and reduce my words to nothing? I think these verses speak for themselves. God in fact will judge the wicked. And here Job speaks in faith again, as we imagine it to be. He is confident that God will deal with the wicked. We're like, Damon, we wish Job would make up his mind. Is God unjust or is God just? Is God not gonna judge the wicked or is God going to judge the wicked? And I would just say, look in your own heart. Don't you find the same conflict as well? That one moment you are, you have great confidence in God and the next, you don't. Well, Job is on a journey and again, in modern parlance, he may be taking two steps forward and one back, but this is a man of faith. Briefly, let's look at how Bildad responds. This is the third time that Bildad speaks. It's very short, five verses, Zophar is not going to speak anymore. Because basically, what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have argued has been reduced to nothing. They speak of cause and effect. If you're a good person, good things will happen to you. If you're a bad person, bad things will happen to you. Well, what about the widow? What about the orphan? Who are not guilty of doing anything wrong, and yet they suffer great wrongs. Well, then all of a a sudden, what Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar are arguing, just doesn't work. At this point, I find myself feeling a sense of relief that we're not going to hear from these friends anymore. Um, I think we are tired of hearing these men pick on Job and his helplessness, almost like poking an open wound over and over again. But one of the problems we face is that Job's friends aren't completely wrong. It would be great if they were, then we could just dismiss them. The book of Job doesn't present them as hypocrites who are gloating over Job. Doesn't present them as heretics who offer false doctrine, or fools who have no serious arguments. Rather, what we find in the book of Job is we have these men who are pontificating about the application of truth, but in the process they misrepresent God and they misjudge Job. They're more concerned for their theology than they are for their friend, and they're more defensive about their theology than they are about God. In Job 24, he spoke of the reality of the wrongdoings that happen in the world. And rather than taking up the challenge to disprove what Job has argued, which I don't think you can, okay, Bildad speaks in the logical extremes of his doctrine. I think his frustration is seen in the fact that he doesn't speak very long. He's, he's like at the end of his rope. He's had it with this friend. He's run out of things to tell Job to convince him of his need to repent. Bildad's view of creation, of man, and of God, paint him into a corner from which he cannot escape. Let's look at the final speech here in Job 25. Then Bildad the Shuhite replied, Dominion and all belong to God. He establishes order in the heights of heaven. Can his forces be numbered? Upon whom does his light not rise? How then can a man be righteous before God? How can one born of woman be pure? If even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less man who is but a maggot, a son of man who is only a worm. Bildad starts out great, that God is in fact sovereign. God has dominion. But this doxology that we find in verses 2, 3, and 4 basically tell us that God is unapproachable, and that is wrong. Yes, God is transcendent, God has dominion, he is sovereign, but to say that he is unapproachable is is quite wrong. In Bildad's view, God rules over uh, all authority, he maintains peace, he commands the forces, the powers of nature, he is the light of the world, he is holy, he is pure. We would not disagree with Bildad on any of these points. In fact, we would argue with him that yes, you're right, we would stand on his side of the argument that he is power, he is peace, he is perfection, he is purity. So what is the problem? It's what Bildad doesn't say, that God is presence. God is one who is in reality. He is eminent, he is in the world. Bildad speaks of a God who is far away, He's not here, he's there. And we should worship him as one who is far above us, we don't doubt that, but he neglects to say that he is also here among us. He also doesn't tell us that God is a person, one with whom we can interact. One almost gets a sense that he sees God as a force, this unapproachable light of holiness, but not a person with whom we can speak. To defend God against Job's accusations, Bildad wants to put God out of reach. And in doing so, he commits, I think, a cardinal sin. He sees God as unapproachable. This is contrary to God's revelation. God has revealed himself. How could he do that if he was unapproachable, if he's transcendent, if he's far, far away? God, in fact, has revealed himself. I think Bildad may have thought he was doing God a favor. God, I'm defending you. This wretch here, Job, is saying these terrible things about you, and I'm defending you. But in doing so, he distorts the truth of who God is. So God is unapproachable. Well, that's wrong. Says nice things, but ultimately he's wrong. Secondly, man is not redeemable. Our view of God will determine our view of humanity. And if we view God as so distant and so transcendent as to have nothing to do with humanity, then then we're screwed. Humanity has no hope. We cannot be redeemed. No matter what a person does, righteousness and purity cannot be achieved. On some level, we agree with Bildad on this, that we are not saved by our own righteousness. As Isaiah wrote, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. In this, Bildad may be closer to the truth than Job is, when he argues that man is powerless to redeem himself. Job seems to be thinking, seems to be saying, that if given a chance, he could, in fact, make a strong case for himself before God in the heavenly court. So who do we side with in this matter, Bildad or Job? Well, it has been suggested that the difference between the two men is that Bildad has faith in his theology, in his doctrine, in his beliefs. Job has faith in God. It's not perfect faith. It seems to waver, it seems to go back and forth, but he has faith in God, where Bildad has faith in his theology. As one author put it, it is the difference between a static faith and a dynamic faith. Static stays in one place. Theology. This is what I believe. These are the doctrines. A dynamic faith is an ongoing relationship with God. So, what does this mean? And I want to be very careful here. We hold to a statement of faith. We say the apostles' creed. We hold to the ancient confessions of the church. It is important that we know what it is that we believe. There is such a thing as, the way Francis Schaeffer put it, capital T, truth, okay? We're not relativist in our thinking. Uh, Situations don't dictate our theology. But at the same time, we need to acknowledge that God is infinite. He cannot be limited by our theological systems. That's what the friends have done, that God can only act in one way, You are a good person, he will bless you. You're a bad person, he will judge you and bad things will happen to you. Their theology has painted God or put him in a box. And therefore they have limited him. When the difficulties of life come, you can either hold to your theological system or you can struggle with the realities of these difficulties in prayer with God. I believe God is sovereign, that in Bildad's words, dominion and all belong to God. I love the words of the psalmist, Psalm 115, our God is in heaven, he does whatever pleases him. God does what he wants. But does this mean that when we see someone suffering or someone in need, that we say, oh, God's will, God's sovereign, he's in control. Or should we simply respond, it's a fallen world. You know, Adam and Eve sinned, you know, millennia ago. Uh, They brought death and decay into the world, and so people suffer. I don't disagree. I don't disagree that God has a will that we do live in a fallen world. But I think I also struggle to understand the Creator and what He is doing in His world. Why would He not end the suffering that people are experiencing here we are in the midst of a pandemic a plague some of us, at least I think myself I thought this would be over last April and here we are now in September we have been praying that God would in fact end this plague, and this pandemic and he has not and hundreds of thousands have died I think our goal should be to know him better, not the why. That may be where we start oftentimes in the conversation. But instead, to know the God who made us, the God who is the creator, to know his purpose for our lives, and to know the joy of communion. But for Bildad, this is unnecessary. He understands God. In his mind, he knows what God does and how God thinks. God is unapproachable. Human beings can't be redeemed. End of story. And while we acknowledge that all we, like sinners, have gone astray, we've each turned to our own way, the verse continues, the Lord has laid on him, that is, the Lord Jesus, the iniquity of us all. There is redemption. And so Bildad is wrong again. The third thing he says is that creation is imperfect. Bildad's opinion of humanity continues to deteriorate when he makes a comparison between creation and humanity. If even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, he uses the imperfections of creation, specifically the moon and the stars, to set up a comparison with humanity. Um, it does sound that he's rather pessimistic about creation, but Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the creation has been subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve, God has, called, has caused all of creation to come under the decay of sin. For Bildad, a decaying creation is better than human beings. Because the fourth point he makes is that human beings are insignificant. One could make a comparison between this passage, verses 5 and 6, in which Bildad deals with creation and humanity, with what David wrote in Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, again, moon and stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Indeed, when you compare all of humanity, humanity, and here we're talking about one person, Job, with the vastness of God's creation, the grandeur of it all, we seem so insignificant. But Bildad and David reach opposite conclusions. David saw humanity as unique, as separate, set apart from creation, as exalted in creation. Because uh, he goes on to say, you made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. What does Bildad say in verse number six? How much less man who is but a maggot, a son of man who is only a worm. Maggot and worm symbolize a wretched, lowly creature. They have the smell of death about them. So having decided that human beings are not redeemable, Bildad continues, human beings are not significant. They are not significant. Um, By the way, it may be in verse number six that Bildad is actually calling Job a maggot or a worm. Um, I wouldn't be surprised because he's so frustrated at this point. but it may, in fact, recall some of the things that Job had said earlier, including in chapter 7, my cloth- my body is clothed with worms and scabs. My skin is broken and festering. And perhaps Bildad is saying, uh, you're not the only one covered with worms and maggots. You are one. You are a maggot and a worm. Um, I don't know. But I do think we can make this judgment that Bildad is absolutely wrong about human beings being insignificant. He's wrong. Human beings are made in the image of God. They are not insignificant. And I think we lose sight of that in our anger when we begin to refer to people as something less than human. If you call somebody a pig, call somebody a dog, maggot, a worm. You're making them less than human. People are made in God's image. They're not insignificant. At the same time, they are sinners. They have rebelled against the one who created them. The second fact does not cancel out the first. Francis Schaeffer had a wonderful uh, phrasing. He said, we are gods in ruins. We're made in the image of God. We bear the image of God, and yet we are ruined. We are gods and ruins. The difference between Bildad and Job is this. Bildad and his friends have faith in their theology. Job has faith in God. And while we may find ourselves agreeing with Bildad and the others from time to time, and we may wince, I mean, really wince at some of the things that Job says, We should acknowledge he's on a pilgrimage of faith, and it's not a straight line, and it's not flat land. Sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down, and sometimes he goes backwards. It's true of all of us. We should not lose hope, we should not lose heart. We should remember that God is, in fact, approachable, human beings are, in fact, redeemable, and we have significance. All of these, I think, are proved in the coming of Jesus into the world. God is approachable. He came in the flesh. Human beings are redeemable. Jesus gave his life. And we are significant, again, seen in his death. It is because of his death that we can be redeemed. Let's pray together. Father, we don't like suffering. All things being equal, we'd rather not suffer anything. On some level, we've, we've sort of agreed that suffering is part of life. But when it comes to something like what Job is suffering, we begin to question, we begin to wonder, why are these things happening? And within our own hearts, we may begin a a great battle. and In that battle we may begin to say, oh God is so far away, he doesn't hear me. He doesn't care about me. I'm insignificant in his eyes. And we fall into the same traps as Bildad did. The reality is in our journey of faith, we may sometimes be quite strong and affirm, God knows exactly what he's doing. And in the next moment, ask, does God even care? Does he know what's happening in my life? As each one of us walks on the journey, the pilgrimage of faith, may we be reminded that, in fact, you do love us. We are significant. You have redeemed us by your Son. And by your Spirit, you're with us every step of the way. You've not abandoned us. There may be times when you are silent, or seemingly so, when we call out and you do not seem to answer. By your grace, may we remember that you, in fact, are there, and that you love us, and the greatest proof of this love is in sending your Son. May we think on these matters in the days to come. This is the first day of a new week Tomorrow is a holiday for many Where they can cease From their labors for a day May we have A sense of your presence as we walk Through the world in the coming days May we remember that in fact You do love us And may you give us Peace I pray in Jesus name Amen